Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, folks, it's another edition of Nonprofit Lowdown with me, Rhea Wong. So, today I am very excited to talk to my new friend, Chris Putnam Walkerly. She is the founder of Putnam Consulting Group and is the author of the brand new book, Delusional Altruism. Love the title. I got a chance to read the book. Y'all can't see it, but it is all marked up with all of the stickies and all of the underlines. It just all about speaking truth to power. So Chris, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Rhea, so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about yourself and your long career in philanthropy. Yeah, I've been advising philanthropists of all kinds and sizes. So high net worth donors, uh, foundation leaders, corporate giving programs for about 20 years. Prior to that, I worked at the David and Lucille Packard Foundation in Silicon Valley uh, back in the day uh, when I think it was the largest foundation in the country. And prior to that, I worked at Stanford University. I was actually evaluating youth and gang violence prevention programs for the California Wellness Foundation. It was their first big initiative called the Violence Prevention Initiative. And that was really focused on shifting the focus of youth violence from a criminal justice issue to more of a public health prevention issue. And so that was really my exposure, I guess, to philanthropy, really recognizing that if funders have nothing else, they have lots of money right? And if you have lots of money, that doesn't necessarily mean you can do great things with it. But if you're really smart about it, you bring in the right expertise and people, advice, best practices, models to really structure and frame your giving, you can have a big impact. And so that encouraged me to work at the Packard Foundation and then ultimately switch to advising and consulting. Wonderful. So we're going to get into the details of this, but the title alone is super juicy, delusional altruism. So what do you mean when you say delusional altruism? What I mean is, in my experience, funders genuinely want to make a difference. They want to change the world. They want to do the right thing. They want to create positive social change, but they're getting in their own way. And they often don't realize this is even happening. And so they're actually preventing themselves from achieving the impact that they seek. My first experience with this was actually at the beginning of my career. I was working, I moved to San Francisco and I was working for a nonprofit organization that supports human rights in Central America. This was back in 1999. And so the big technology of the day was the fax machine. Many of you might not remember that, but <laughs> there it was in its glory. And we used fax machines back then the same way that we use social media now, like to get the word out, to try to get people engaged, call your congressperson, go to this demonstration. And it was so important that we felt we couldn't afford our own fax machine. And instead, we actually had to walk half a mile down the street, 10 blocks in the San Francisco Mission District in order to be able to borrow somebody else's fax machine. And we would do this like multiple times a day, multiple times a week, round trip. That was a big production. Then fast forward and I was on my first delegation to El Salvador and I walk in, we're bringing international aid. I walk in to the organization we were supporting and lo and behold, they had this ginormous fax machine. And I was kind of stunned, right? Cause I thought, well, they're relying on international donations that we're bringing. We don't think we can afford a fax machine, but there they have one. And this thing was huge. It could copy, collate. It practically made the coffee. And so I asked the executive director of this organization, how can you afford a fax machine? And he looked at me like I had five heads. And he said, well, we need to send faxes every day. So of course we need a fax machine. 
And this was my first retrospect experience with what I call delusional altruism now, because that organization was so focused in San Francisco on saving money, but saving it on all the wrong things. Because if we could have, instead of walking a mile round trip to send a fax, if we could have spent that hour calling donors, like I'm sure we would have raised a lot more money every day, but instead we were so focused on how much we could save and cost cutting. And so to me, that's just another example. I think a lot of philanthropy operates with a scarcity mindset and it saves money on all the wrong things. And I think that's one of the, the key manifestations of delusional altruism. Okay. I want to talk about this because I talk a lot about scarcity mindset on the nonprofit side and trying to raise money coming from a scarcity mindset. And so honestly, it was very surprising to me as I was reading the book that you talked about scarcity mindset in the minds of philanthropists. Because in my mind, I'm like, wait, they have all this money. How is it that they're coming from a scarcity mindset? So talk to me about how does that manifest in philanthropists? Yeah, it's interesting. Exactly. You think that, again, if philanthropists have anything, they have access to wealth, either their own wealth, they've made so much money, they have plenty to take care of themselves and their family and ample to extra to give it away. Or you're the professional staff of a foundation or a corporate giving program, and you're stewarding and giving away someone else's money. But despite all that access to wealth, a lot of funders, and I would say most, really have a scarcity mindset. By that, I mean this misguided belief that maintaining a Spartan operation somehow equates to greater impact. And they apply that scarcity mindset to themselves as funders, and then, of course, to nonprofits as well. But I think what's interesting is the scarcity mindset that funders apply to themselves. So I believe that to have the greatest impact in the world as a funder, you need to become the best philanthropist that you can be. And so by that, I mean things like investment in yourself. And I don't necessarily mean spending a lot of money. I do mean like investing in your own learning, your own professional development, your talent development, your evaluation, technology, strategy, whatever, your own infrastructure so that you have the best insights, talent around you, infrastructure, whatever, financial management systems that you can so that you can be as effective. But I think also a scarcity mindset in many ways really is a mindset, like it has nothing to do with money in the sense that often funders will think, well, we only have a little bit of money. We only have like a million dollars to give away, not a hundred million. So we can't really have an impact. And so they'll hold themselves back or they'll kind of fund like Band-Aid solutions as opposed to really transformational change. Or they'll just feel fear and fear holds them back from taking risks. Or they will just believe that they're too small to make a difference. And so I think it's kind of stunning. I really believe that it's going to happen. It's happening all the time, but it's going to get worse, I think, with the recession is they start to cut back on things like their own professional development and networking and conferences and association memberships and advising and things like that. And really what they need to be doing is leaning in and ensuring that they're as strong as they can be. Just a simple example is technology. And as we all experienced when COVID hit, we all had to go home and suddenly work from home. And there are a lot of funders that smart talented, well-known funders that were stuck and could not give money away because they fund through checks, like they write, print, and physically sign checks. And the checks were like trapped in the office. (laughs) They were all at home panicking, like scrambling, like could not get money out the door, even though they actually wanted to. And it's the funders that invested in that basic kind of technology of like, how do we move this online? It isn't rocket science, but you just have to make that investment and figure it out and make that happen. 
One thing that I was thinking about as I read about the scarcity mindset for oneself, I also thought how that translated to scarcity mindset for the nonprofit. So that looked like under investing in things like infrastructure or executive leadership or technology to your point. So I was reading, I was getting like PTSD around (laughs) receiving grants, but you can only use X percent of this on salaries and Y percent of this on program, but we're not going to pay for staff. And I was like, how exactly Mm -hmm. am I supposed to deliver a program if you're not paying for the staff that actually delivers the program. That's exactly right. As your listeners, I'm sure know, especially those of you working in the nonprofits, I'm sure you experience this. You're trying to create like systems change or like pass policy legislation, right? Which requires multi-year investment, really good talent, communication strategies, probably organizing strategies. And your funder is willing to fund it, which is cool, but only going to give you one year of funding, right? And you need like five years commitment because- what you need as the nonprofit is to make strategic long-term decisions about how you're going to allocate your time, what the right approach will be given the resources and what's involved. And if you need to bring in top talent to help you do that, you can't hire somebody and say, well, I only have one year of funding. And then you're stuck hiring less talented talent who are willing to take that kind of riskier one-year position and hope for the best. And that's a challenge. It really hamstrings nonprofits And it makes zero sense because again, if you're a funder and you believe in whatever cause you care about, opioid addiction, domestic violence, early childhood education, ending homelessness, climate change, like whatever it is, then don't you want the nonprofit organizations that are doing the work that you believe in, don't you want them to have the best talent, finances, fund development strategies, strategic planning, board governance, like all of that stuff takes investment it takes resources. And if you want your nonprofits to be successful, to help you as the donor achieve your mission, then you really need to equip them with what they need in terms of the actual true costs of running those organizations and the support and talent and development that they need. So I'm going to switch tax a little bit because one of the other ways that you say that philanthropists delude themselves is speed. So I know, we all know that it takes a really long time to get a grant funded. I mean, generally budgeted around 18 months, and that includes all of the site visits and the reports and the proposals and the waiting for the board to meet. It felt like such a cumbersome process, especially when we were dealing with work in the here and now. So can you talk a little bit about speed? And do you think that COVID has actually inspired philanthropists to speed up their process? Yeah. I mean, I believe philanthropy moves very slowly. In fact, in the book, Delusional Altruism, I talk about sloths as kind of the analogy (laughs) to philanthropic speed. And it's a problem. So just an example, another one is early in my career as a advisor, I was brought in by a large statewide foundation that was concerned that they had stopped getting applications from certain counties in that state and they wanted to know why. And so I talked to the nonprofits that were, had been applying and they finally had given up. <laughs> like it had taken so long and the foundation's priorities had changed so many times and they had so many conversations with program officers that went nowhere that they finally just like threw up their hands and gave up. And this was like one of the largest funders in that state on that issue. And so that's very telling to me when a nonprofit just like can't deal with applying anymore, right? Because it's too cumbersome, it's too lengthy, it's going nowhere. 
But another way that this happens a lot is in strategic planning. And it's very common for a funder to take 18 months to develop their strategic plan. In fact, I was just talking to a community foundation leader last week who had read my book and said, Chris, we are doing everything wrong. Like everything that you say not to do, we're doing. And they were spending a lot of money on strategic planning consultants, hundreds of thousands of dollars, taking a year, doing all this data gathering when they really probably knew most of the answers themselves, but to kind of demonstrate that they had done their homework, had engaged the community, quote unquote. Then it's all of the endless meetings of the board kind of coming up with the plan. And then the plan is kind of adopted at a retreat, but it's not done yet because then they have to like write it all up. They literally hire writers to write it. It includes the history of the foundation, some beautiful infographics, theory of change, blah, blah, blah. Then it goes to the graphic designer. I can't make this up. And then it's finally done and they email it off to the board members for approval at the next board meeting, which I guarantee you will be like two or three months later. So like it, two years could pass before a plan is like approved and ready to be implemented. Meanwhile, like the world has been spinning on its axis and has changed multiple times and it's not relevant anymore. And so that's a huge problem. And I think to your other question, yes, a lot of funders have made dramatic progress responding to COVID in terms of shedding a lot of these misguided beliefs and outdated practices. They've made grants quickly. They've doubled their grant making budget. And one of my clients is the Moses Taylor Foundation in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And they picked up the phone and called a bunch of grantees to say, we have extra checks waiting for you. They'll apply. All you need to do is come and get them so you can deposit them. Like we believe in you. They have removed restrictions from grants so that whatever the project was for, whatever they were funded to do originally, they could now use for cooperating support and responding however they needed to. So yeah, there's been a lot of improvement. I mean, it's interesting. Crisis, sometimes you realize how ridiculous these practices are in a crisis because you have to respond in a different way. And I think that's been really positive. So I was just thinking about some of the things you said around the reluctance to offer unrestricted general operating support and these cumbersome report processes or cumbersome financial audits. And I'm wondering, do you think it stems from a lack of trust or like where does that impulse come from? Yes, I think it ultimately comes from fear. In fact, I read a whole chapter in the book about how fear holds funders back. And I think, and it manifests itself in lots of different ways, but one of the ways is fear of losing control. And I think that's a way that funders try to maintain control is by very tightly dictating exactly how the funding can be used. And sometimes that comes in the form, like they've pre-figured that out through like a initiative that they've created. And so they're seeking organizations to kind of follow the guidelines of that initiative, which isn't by definition necessarily bad, but that's some of the ways. And then also just by saying exactly to your point, you can use the funding for the program, but we're not going to pay for your staff. Give me a break. I mean, like what happens without people? Or you have to demonstrate evaluation results, but we're not going to fund the evaluation or whatever it might be. And so, yes, I think it's really a fear. It's based in fear and based in losing control. So many questions I have here. One of the things that I will say, and I recommend that you all read this book because for the folks in the nonprofit, you'll just be nodding along. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. There's some juicy details here about like bad behavior of foundation folks. And I was like, oh, like the time wasters. Yep. The bully. Yep. The shapeshifter. Yep. Like, oh, we've just like changed our strategy again. So 
Is there anything to be done with respect to, I guess, reinforcing good, healthy behaviors between nonprofits and philanthropists? I see a lot of positive activity and movement, especially right now, and especially as funders are responding to racism, anti-Black racism, institutional systemic racism in this country, which obviously has been going on since inception of the country, but has come to light for so many funders. And there's been such an upswell, I think, of activity and leadership and a recognition that the people who are living in communities experiencing these issues are the ones who have solutions, right? That know what's needed and that there really needs to be a greater connection between philanthropy and those community leaders, nonprofit leaders, so much more effort and activity and attention now to funding Black-led and people of color-led organizations and a recognition of why that's important. I think there's been, I read $6 billion focused on racial equity in the past six months. And it's like more than the past nine years combined. I might have that data a little bit off, but it's something like that. I mean, it's crazy. Now, not that all that's focused on people of color-led organizations, but I think it's a lot. And I really do believe that there's a recognition and a reckoning about the need for philanthropy to be more trust-based, built on relationship, trying to dismantle some of the power dynamics, which are hard to shake because someone has the money to give and someone needs that money. And that's hard to undo that, right? That power dynamic. But just a reckoning about this is true partnership and the funder is likely not the one that really knows what's needed, but should be supporting the organizations to build their capacity to create systems change and build movements led by the people impacted by these issues so that these structural barriers can get broken down. It really feels to me like there's a lot more happening on that, you know, even since this summer than ever before. I want to talk about Mackenzie Scott, Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, because mm-hmm. as we all know, she came out of the gate with some very large gifts and it wasn't through the traditional, like, I am going to start a foundation and I'm going to hire people. And like, She just sort of figured out what she wanted to do and just deployed money to mm-hmm. people of color-led organizations. So I'm wondering if you can walk us through, like, what do you think that Mackenzie Scott right? She got a lot of things right. And I wrote about this recently in Forbes.com. She got a lot right. So a couple things. One is I think philanthropy and the nonprofit sector also tend to complexify the simple when we need to simplify the complex. And I think one of the things she got right was, and it's kind of stunning. She just gave away $1.7 billion, billion with a B, to 116 organizations in July. And there's a lot more to come. And she did it without any institution. She did not create a foundation. She did not have any kind of organization around her. Now she did, as I understand it, bring on advisors to help her who did some due diligence and research. So it wasn't just like with no labor or or effort, but she issued the money to these organizations without requiring applications. I mean, she made sure that the organizations she wanted to support. And then she notified them, like they didn't even know this was happening that you're receiving a large grant. So that's one thing. I mean, she really simplified that process, which is kind of stunning because other organizations could have spent two years coming up with systems and the processes and the structures and whatnot. Secondly, she gave this money away as core operating support. So unrestricted grants, you can use the money however you want, which is amazing. And then third, as you mentioned, a lot of these, not all, but a lot of them were focused on organizations working on racial equity, gender equity, LGBTQ equity, 
and other issues. And many or most, I don't know the percentage, were funding organizations led by Black-led and people of color-led organizations, or women-led, or LGBTQ-led, et cetera. And so that's really remarkable as well. She signed the Giving Pledge. She made a commitment to give away most of her wealth during her lifetime, which is hard because she's the richest woman in America and her wealth just keeps growing, right? I mean, it's invested, like the stock market's doing well. Like it's, her money keeps growing so fast that it's literally hard to give it away or keep up with giving it away. That might sound like, oh, that's, you know, I wish I had that problem. And I guess we all probably do wish we had that problem, but that's hard. And to do it well, and to do that on the full view, I mean, there's so much opportunity for people to pounce on anyone today, anyone of any kind of celebrity, anyone who's well known, and to criticize them, sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And so there's a lot of risk just in doing that publicly. And she also made a point, I think she published this in Medium. She said, not only do I want to do this, I want to talk about why I'm doing it and why I chose to fund these organizations because she said she came to realize that it wasn't just the money, it's also signaling to other funders, this is important and we all need to step up and give. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting point. And you know, one of the points that you made in the book that I was really taken by is also thinking about everyday philanthropy. Like I think we think about it on the level of like Mackenzie Scott Bezos and like, well, I don't have Mackenzie Scott Bezos money, right? So to your point, like being hamstrung or fearful that what we have to give isn't going to be sufficient. But the truth is a hundred dollars can make a difference if there are enough of those hundred dollar donors. And so I think the responsibility to be good philanthropists rests with all of us, no matter what our capacity is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Most people aren't giving away $1.7 billion. <laughs> I should be so lucky. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, we're all philanthropists, right? Anyone that is giving of their resources or their time or their connections, we, we all have so much to give beyond money. We have our knowledge, our skills, our connections, the doors we can open for others. And I think the lessons that we can take from her and a lot of the funders, like the Libra Foundation, Crystal Haling is the CEO of, and Robert Sterling Clark, there's the Ford Foundation. There's lots of these organizations that are being mindful about strategy, right? Like, what are we trying to accomplish? Where are we today? And what's the best way for us to get from where we are today to where we want to be? And a lot of people are drawing the conclusion that funding organizations led by people of color, investing in efforts to support racial equity and injustice build movements, strengthen democracy, all these things that are really important are the way to go and to, and to free up the funding to the people who kind of can best use it and, and know what to do with it so that they can not only navigate challenges, but also take advantage of opportunities that come their way, which is another value of cooperating support. Got it. Okay. I'm going to open it up to the chat. Marvin. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Chris, so much for your insight and being part of this conversation today. My first question is, what type of funder education have you found effective in moving funders from this scarcity mindset to abundance mindset? That's a really interesting question. Thank you, Marvin. I appreciate that. I think what's been really helpful is a couple things. One is there's been a lot of effort in the past five, six, eight, ten years to help funders understand and fund racial equity, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And not just to support that in their grantees, but also how to apply that equity lens on themselves so that they're walking their own talk. There's been a lot of effort around this. So there's kind of no one professional development, I would say. 
particularly, but there's been a lot of national funders like Kellogg and Ford that have funded organizations to, especially through the Borealis Philanthropies, to support other organizations. Like a lot of funding has gone to philanthropy associations across the country so that they are thinking about how do we advance diversity, equity, and inclusion in our work and for our members. And so I think that's a really good example of a lot of things, really part of it is a really good example of the importance of infrastructure and supporting the infrastructure of philanthropy so that you have organizations like the National Center for Family Philanthropy doing this for family funders or exponent philanthropy, doing that for more lean and smaller funders or whatever the organization is. Obviously organizations like ABFI, which originally stood for the Association of Black Foundation Executives, doing a lot of amazing work to help funders recognize kind of the changes they need to make and so I think the collectively as a field, there's been a lot more trainings and coaching and conference sessions, entire conferences, conference themes that are all dedicated to this issue. There's been organizations like Annie Casey Foundation, which really has been a leader in advancing racial equity, not just in the field, but applying that in their foundation. And they documented a lot of their work, like how they are operationalizing equity internally and are sharing that with the field. And so I think it's like really more of the collective body of resources that are really helping funders because it's kind of like they keep hearing the same messages and in different ways. And so I think collectively that's really helping them to make some of these changes. And I think that's one piece of moving from a scarcity to an abundance mindset, but I think it's a really important piece because it causes and forces funders to really rethink their work, their guidelines, who they're funding, who they haven't been funding, who they're hiring, who they haven't been hiring, and like all of these changes that requires an abundance mindset to recognize like you might not have ha gotten it right originally, like you need to change, you can change, you're willing to make that kind of an investment in yourself. Thanks, Chris. I have a question coming in from Gerlin. Hello, uh, Chris. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate the opportunity. I was talking with some colleagues who were looking to fund their people, lawyers, uh, working with unaccompanied minors. And the conversation always went back to funders just not wanting to pay for salaries. And I'm thinking it's 2020 and I've heard this argument for as long as I've been a nonprofit. And I just wonder why is that still a conversation we're having and how might we use this current disruption in philanthropy and in the nonprofit sector to finally move away from, I'm not going to fund the people who do the work. Also, I think what is the role that we nonprofits are playing in perpetuating this mindset because we play a role as well too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's a really great question and a couple thoughts come to mind. One is I think one of the reasons why funders are fearful and I, again it comes back to fear of funding staff is they worry that they won't have an exit strategy like they'll fund you the nonprofit to hire somebody to do a program but they're not sure that they're going to be able to keep funding you over time so they feel bad, like they feel bad that this staff person will come on board, do all this work, and then will have to be laid off because there won't be funding to sustain them. So then their solution is to not fund the staff, which is misguided, I hear you. But I think that's really part of it. It's like, a, it's guilt and it's fear and it's flawed because what they should be doing is investing in the organization or maybe investing in the fund development strategies of that nonprofit so they can raise more money, et cetera. 
But a couple of things. One is late 2019, there was actually a lot of activity in philanthropy focused on supporting the full costs of nonprofit organizations. And I know that they were a group of very large foundations, the Ford Foundation, I believe the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, I believe the Packard Foundation and others had come together in kind of like a pact to say, this is a problem. Like nonprofits are not funded at the level they actually need to be. The whole notion of like issuing like a maximum overhead rate, like your overhead can't be more than 10% or we won't fund you or that's all we'll fund is ridiculous. And they made a commitment, a public commitment to changing that. And I know one of them, I just can't remember which one, uh, already announced kind of how they were doing that. And they dramatically increased their overhead rate for proposals and whatnot. I would point funders to those examples. And there were also a couple reports and a few can't find them, you can certainly email me. My email is chris, with a K, K-R-I-S, at putnam-consulting.com, and I will happily get you the information. But there were several reports called things like the full cost project. And I know that a group of the regional associations in California had come together to focus on this as well. Northern California grant makers, Southern California grant makers, to really do some research and explain why these nonprofits are barely making it. They have barely three months of cash reserves, if that, and currently don't have the resources to really do the work that they need to do. And so was, they were really calling on the field to increase their support for overhead and administration and infrastructure and all these things that have gotten a bad rap, but that's actually the work. That's like the people, the work, the personnel and whatnot. So I, I would look to those examples and share those with funders. And then just briefly to get to your last question about the role of nonprofits, I do think it's kind of a vicious circle that perpetuates itself. Funders kind of don't fund enough and nonprofits feel like they can't really ask for enough. I was advising the Charles and Helen Schwab Foundation many years ago and I was reviewing proposals. And as a foundation, they were giving grants of, let's say, easily $25,000, $50,000, $75,000 each. And I would often see nonprofits apply and request for $5,000. And I would like want to scream. I would be like, no, you know, ask for more. We'll give you more. Like, <laughs> we might not give you 50, but ask for 50, we'll give you 35. Like, don't ask for $5,000. When you need, it's so abundant that you need more. You know, how could you possibly piece together these little grants. And so I think, think nonprofits feel fearful as well and, and fear asking for what they truly need and demonstrating what they actually need. On that note, Chris, do you think that there's any opportunity for nonprofits to come together around some collective action? Because it, it feels a little bit like, to your point, if you're a nonprofit and you're fearful of asking, is there power in numbers? There is. And I know there have been some examples of that recently around funders lack of support for racial justice issues. I think that's really important. And I think there certainly is security in numbers because it is a scary thing to do. What are you willing to put on the line? What's the risk you know, if you lose funding? And funders don't really want to be called out. No one wants to be called out for bad behavior or for not doing the right thing, right? And so I think the more that nonprofit leaders can kind of raise these issues through publication of articles, even online posting through partnerships with others, to raise the issue, I think more power to them. And I think really in this country, most change has come through collective action and taking risks and, and being visible. So that's actually a beautiful segue into Marvin's second question. Marvin, what's your question? Thanks, Rhea. 
I'm wondering, Chris, if you can sort of paint a picture for us of what trust-based philanthropy looks like or can look like. I think there's a really sort of interesting power dynamic when it comes to these relationships where the funder is supposed to trust the nonprofit and that power dynamic feels problematic to me in some ways, but I'd love to just hear a little bit more about your thoughts on that and how it can work in a way that feels equitable and empowering for the nonprofit leaders. Yeah, and there's certainly been a lot of talk about trust-based philanthropy of late, which is great. But again, I, I also feel like this is one of those areas that we can complexify unnecessarily. Like building a trusting relationship really shouldn't be hard, right? It is not rocket science. And I think that funders need to do a lot of things better. First of all, is simply be yourself. I think a lot of funders feel guilty for the position that they're in, especially ultra high net worth donors. And so therefore like retract, hide themselves, hold back, stay invisible, don't engage, right? And I think it's out of fear and guilt in many ways. In some cases, it's out of fear of being kind of like inundated with requests. I mean, I know funders that are like literally afraid to go to the grocery store because they don't want to get hit up for grant requests. But I think what's really important is just to have a trusting relationship. We all need to be ourselves, right? We all need to be honest about who we are and where we come from and what our experiences are, whatever that is. If you were homeless growing up or you were privileged growing up, like here you are. And so be yourself because that's all you have, right? And just kind of own that. I think that's a huge starting piece. I think secondly is really walking the talk and do what you say you're gonna do. And this is an area I think, especially with funders interest in supporting racial justice and kind of organizations led by people of color, it can be very easy to slide into, well, we're not gonna fund you because you don't have enough people of color on your board. When the funder themselves doesn't have any people of color on their board, you know what I mean? And isn't doing any work to figure out like what that means or what they should do differently or what they need to learn about themselves and their own bias and their own racism. That's just one of many examples Funders can also say, well, you need to, you know, I need to see the results of what you're doing, but aren't willing to look at their own impact and their own results, right? So I think walking the talk and really thinking about what are you asking of nonprofits and would you ask that of yourself? And if you wouldn't ask of it of yourself, why are you asking it of nonprofit organizations? The third, I think, is to be willing to be vulnerable, be willing to admit when you don't know something, you don't know the answer. You don't know what your next step is, your next move, how to approach something, what your role should be. We don't know all these things and life is complex. And so I think it's okay to admit when you've made mistakes or when you're wrong. And I think that goes a long way in building trust. And then the fourth I would say is someone once told me you can trust someone when they've proved themselves to be trustworthy over and over again in times of crisis. Right? It's like during a crisis that you really learn who people are. And I've seen examples where funders did that. They really like when for a nonprofit, like the funder was there for them. They didn't abandon them. One example is in the Annie Casey Foundation, they were supporting an organization called Maryland Advocates for Children and Youth. And this was a big partner of theirs. But for a variety of reasons, the nonprofit had lost major funding, had a CEO transition unexpectedly, and was on the verge of collapsing. And they came to Casey and said, this is happening. They were honest and willing to be vulnerable and show what was not working. And Casey said, we need you, like, we can't let you fail. 
So let's get you the help you need. Let's get you the consulting support, hiring a new CEO, transitions, like whatever you need. We're going to help you get through this as opposed to a lot of funders that'll step back and say, well, come back to us in a year and we'll see if you're still standing basically. And so I think we don't have any shortage of crises right now. So I think it's a really good opportunity for funders to demonstrate that they can really be there for their nonprofit partners. So Chris, we're going to wrap up. I wanted to say thank you so much for writing this book. And I hope that it creates a conversation of change in the philanthropic sector. I guess I'm wondering any last thoughts as we're signing off today? Yeah, I think the opposite of a scarcity mindset is an abundance mindset. And I think it's important for all of us to live with abundance. And that can mean a lot of different things, but I think it means certainly investing in ourselves and our own learning, challenging ourselves to do something differently, to open ourselves up to new ideas. But it also means, I think, recognizing that there's, we have huge opportunity in front of us. I mean, as hard of a year this is, it's also like amazing that we're all alive and here during this year. There's so much opportunity and awakening, I believe, for dramatic change. And just look at the education system. Everybody has been impacted by what's happening and the inequities in our education system. We have to create changes, right? And so I think we also have before us huge opportunity for change and growth and elimination of barriers and radical change of systems and structures. And we need to continue to seize that. That is awesome. And I totally agree with you. Out of chaos comes innovation and positive change and evolution. So I'm going to make sure to put Chris's information in the show notes. Grab a copy of Delusional Altruism. You will enjoy it. Have a big glass of wine while you're doing it because they'll be nodding along. If you're like me, you'll get some PTSD flashbacks. But Chris, thank you so much for being with us today and good luck to you. I hope you saw lots of books. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me. Very inspiring and very insightful, I would say. Thanks so much. Thank you, everyone. Have a good day.